You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, Mark Hatmaker here, coming to you from the Comancheria. Today we're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, uh, maybe some tradition, maybe a little bit of holdover from historical quirks. Uh, we're going to be talking combat stances. And we'll also be talking about kittens. And we'll be talking about uh, hoplites from ancient days. And uh, But let's open up a little bit of cooking, right? Uh, trust me, this all winds up together. Uh, I heard a story forever ago about a woman who, whenever every time she made a pot roast, uh, before she put it into the oven, she had sliced off both ends of the pot roast before setting it to the pan. And uh, after a time, it was remarked, uh, I says, why do, you, why do you cut off both ends of it? And she just says, well, that, that's how you do it. She says, some other people said, I've never seen it done that way. She says, well, my mother always did it that way, and I learned it from her. Well, it turned out over time, the same woman who had been cutting off the ends of the pot roast uh, asked her mother, you're supposed to cut off the ends before you put it into uh, the pan. I've always seen you do that. She says, oh, no, no, I did that because my uh, roasting pan was small. I was trying to make room. So here we have a little bit of a holdover in a behavior with cutting off the ends of a pot roast when it wasn't necessary, but you do it just because uh, you saw the practice done, but at a time it had a, a function to it and it no longer had a function. So you're likely going to be ahead of me as we move forward. Now let's get into that. Let's move on to the kittens I talked about. Do you have a kitten, by the way? If so, go play with it. I want you to dangle something in front of it, activate its play fighting mode. I mean, watch it bat at the standing enemy with a forepaw, okay? You know, dangle that string and watch it go to work. Now, if you don't have a kitten, perhaps you got a dog, right? Go play with the dog. Rile him up a bit, toss a toy in the ground, watch him pin that toy with the forepaw, and then and then we'll go to work with the jaws, all right? Now, no dogs or kittens in the house, but a toddler. If you have one of those around, if you have an 18 to 36-month-old human being around your house, go play with them. You know, roll a ball with them and you know, watch them pick it up and then roll it back. If you don't have any kittens or dogs or toddlers around, well, let's try something else. Let's see. Uh, do you have you around? Yeah, you. Okay, now we're listening to this. I want you to look around where you are right now, unless you're driving. I want you to pick up something. Pick up the nearest small object with, uh, within your reach. Now, that we've all played with our pets, with their kids, at the very least picked up a stapler or something, we can repeat these activities and pay attention to the handedness of all the entities that we, uh, we played with. The kitten will bat primarily with a dominant paw. The dog will pin its mock prey to the ground primarily with a dominant paw. Incidentally, dogs will also wag their tails a bit more on their paw dominant side. Uh, the toddler will have begun ballparking on a dominant handedness in the 18 to 39 month period. All right? And you, well, you've already knew which is your dominant hand. What I'm wanting you to divine in all this, well, let's look at how each of these animals, yourself included, position the body in the use of the dominant hand. When kittens bat their paws or adult cats fight, that dominant paw is primarily to the fore, not concealed behind a tri-legged stance and held aloft to the rear. The dog reaches and pins with the dominant paw to the fore. The toddler advances with the dominant side forward. There's a good chance that when you picked up something, you chose something from your dominant side as opposed to reaching across your body with the dominant hand. In coordinated tasks, Coordinated precision tasks, humans more often than not will position themselves with the dominant side forward. 
It is only with power-related tasks that we see a reversal of stance, that is, uh, placing the dominant side of the rear. We see this reversal in, say, swinging an axe or throwing a ball, throwing a spear, and we often see it in combat sports where what is called the orthodox stance is placing your dominant hand to the rear. Now, why is this? The first thought, with our minds already anchored on power from the preceding uh, uh, thought, we might assume, well, uh, what I really want to wind up something, I want to make it count, I want to get all the power I can out of it, right? Well, that may be true in some cases, but consider this. Your dominant side is already stronger and more coordinated than your subdominant side. This being the case, why do we not just as easily assume that putting power and coordination to the fore and the weaker hand to the rear, allowing the weaker hand to gain power by dint of travel and wind-up to be more wisely orthodox? In a sense, we're equalizing power, not just trying to gain and ballpark power all on one side. We're making both, making both sides equally powerful and putting more coordination uh, forward. It seems like a wise way to arrange uh, your military uh, battle you, you, when you're putting your soldiers together, right? Well, I wager that what we are seeing with dominant hand to the rear is actually a cultural artifact, kind of like cutting off the ends of a roast beef for your roasting pan. Uh, this is a uh, cultural artifact is like, likely based on weapons training. If we look at early warfare, we'll use hoplites for this example. We see warriors wielding sword or spear in the dominant hand and shield or buckler in the subdominant hand. The buckler is to the fore, allowing the warrior to make coordinated and strong offense from behind this protection. Now, this makes complete tactical sense. These sword and shield tactics ran deeply in early warfare, and it's easy to see a translation from this weapon combat stance to the unarmed combat stance. I mean, much pugilistic research indicates that early boxing or any early throwing of hands, for that matter, mimicked the sword and buckler stance in much of the tactics. The lead arm used to ward off blows or to stiff arm for distance, with the rear hand providing the power. As a matter of fact, many of our early pugilists were also, uh, they used welded cudgels, some of them quarterstaff. Many of the uh, these, these fights actually began with some cudgel work or quarterstaff, and then, you know, maybe after an hour's respite, then they would go with the, with the empty hands. I mean, these things were part and parcel. They were considered twin arts. It's not until the era of Mendoza that we begin to really hear tales of the lead hand doing some major work and begin to uh, begin developing the jab, although the dominant hand is still to the rear. All right? That might have been uh, the jab is you know, rising up in efficacy and in use and utilization, but we're still seeing adherence to the, uh, the roasting pan of the, uh, the sword and buckler or the, the good hand of the rear. Now, what was occurring in the Mendoza era that might have spurred this greater use of the lead hand dominant or otherwise? I wager we're again looking at influence from weapons culture. Sword and buckler culture gradually gave way to sword culture with personal swords. Uh, without a shield being the primary mode of defense. And, you know, gentlemen and uh, almost anyone could start wa uh, walking around with a, a, sword, a sword in the belt. Uh, once the development began, a metallurgy allowed for lighter blades requiring less power to swing. Think moving from broadswords to rapiers and cutlasses and such. The dominant hand of the four began to hold sway. I want you to think of it in fencing. We no longer we see the good hand forward. Even if it's advancing in a straight linear line, at least in the uh, Olympic sense of it, we do see the coordinated hand forward. Now, we do see some holdovers with manuals using the cloak spun around the forearm. It's a sort of buckler stand-in, but for the most part, once the buckler is gone, well, those stances switched. That weapon hand goes forward. Well, it seems that pugilism noticed the value of lead hand attacks and parries and adapted these tactics, but the stance itself never quite really followed. Now, I know this is all historical conjecture, but it has a ring of probability to it that might make us consider that if we train dominant hand to the rear, we might be simply perpetuating an artifact from the hoplite era. And perhaps we might have much to learn from kittens and dogs and toddlers, and uh, maybe perhaps like, go back to that baking analogy or preparing the roast. Ask yourselves, is there really a lot 
lot of wisdom in doing things that way. Now, again, none of this was to convince you to immediately start switching your stance and or you know strive for uh, close to ambidexterity, Marvin Hagler style. Well, marvelous Marvin Hagler style. It is at least food for thought to say that we're supposed to be putting a weather eye on everything, every single aspect of our tactics and our strategies, and ask questions. Constantly examine what's going on. See if there's true utility, true value there. Anyway, crew, if you enjoy that, please like, subscribe, share the podcast, support it. Uh, if you'd like, have a look at the Indigenous Ability blog. If you want to look deep into our training resources, go over to ExtremeSelfProtection.com and have a look at our black box training warehouse and all that noise. Other than that, take care of yourself, crew. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, ExtremeSelfProtection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. <laughs>